And this morning we come to another one of those experiences and indeed one of those emotions of the Christian life, which is doubt. Doubt. Chris read much of Psalm 73 this morning, but I'm going to read all of it again. Psalm 73, verses 1 through 28. Hear God's word, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High God? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in the slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may his word stand forever. Amen. Doubt. Doubt. We normally think of doubt as being something that um, the university professor has, right? We think of people whose names end with Kins, Dawkins, and Hawkins. We think of the graduate student with a goatee and shaggy hair, the unkept, right, philosopher sitting in the coffee shop, and those who love watching Doctor Who. But the reality is this, (laughs) Doctor Who, (laughs) everyone doubts, everyone doubts. Everyone doubts. The Bible is honest about this reality in the Christian life. It does not shy away from it. In fact, its most faithful, most, um, most standout heroes of the faith are known in large part for their doubts. John the Baptist, he's called by Jesus the greatest man ever born of woman. John the Baptist has a um, stellar career living a bizarre, eccentric sort of life out in the wilderness. He prophesies of Jesus coming and calls the people to repent. And Jesus comes and begins his ministry. 
and John the Baptist fades out of the limelight and into jail, where he is arrested by Herod for calling him out. And while he is jailed, waiting for what might be, what he is not sure, but may be his execution in the future, he, in the midst of being jailed, questions. And so he sends one of his own helpers to ask Jesus, okay, are you really the Messiah? I got to know. Now, Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins. He knew Jesus. His whole ministry and life was based around proclaiming that Jesus was the one who was going to come and save the sins of the world. And yet, John the Baptist, in his final days, doubted. Job, most righteous man on earth, after he'd gone through so much suffering, he experienced much doubt. And then we find here today, the author of this psalm, Psalm 73, as you saw in the very beginning, it's a psalm of Asaph. You know who Asaph is? He's a man who wrote 12 psalms. He was a Levite, a priest, who led God's people in worship. He is one of David's great worship leaders. He's writing new songs for God's people. And in fact, he's writing Bible. That's You get to be pretty great if you're writing Bible. And yet, what do we see? Asaph here is wrestling with the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people and such wonderful things happen to such evil people? That's the question he's asking. He's saying, why would a supposedly good God who's in charge of the world allow this kind of injustice, allow the powerful to oppress the poor and the marginalized, and for me, one of the righteous ones who experienced so much trouble? No No matter how far along you are in your Christian life, Listen, none of you have written scripture. None of you are called the greatest woman born of woman or the most righteous man on the earth, and yet we see these men all deal with doubts. Therefore, we must deal with our doubts. We cannot run away from them. We cannot deny them. And as I'll show you in just a minute, because our doubts are deeper than merely intellectual, it will not do to simply, when we have that thought of doubt, that intellectual question come in our head, just go... And hope that it leaves us because we, we must deal with our doubts. Here's the reason why. Because they are. Because they are there. This is an account looking back on the past. Asaph is walking us through how he dealt with his doubt. He's looking back at what happened, the state of his heart that brought him to the place of doubt. And then what brought him out of doubt. And as we engage with this this morning, I want to give you a measure of hope. Because it is those who doubt. God uses doubt as one of a significant means in the life of his people to grow them. You'll notice that where he begins and where he ends. Verse 2, he's in a place, a slippery slope. He's doubting, he's struggling. And by the end, Asaph has actually grown in his love for the Lord. The great account of Thomas, right? The most famous doubter in all of Christian history. You know, the book of John is... Is, is the way it is designed is all these various proclamations of those who follow Jesus of saying who he is. And Thomas has the final word. Did you know that? That the whole account of Jesus and Peter is an epilogue to the book of John. The afterword. That the final word, the final proclamation of who Jesus is comes from a skeptic. When Thomas goes, I will not believe until I have put my fingers into his side and see the holes in his hands. Yeah, where do we see the most wonderful, the most clear 
proclamation of who Jesus is comes from doubting Thomas. By the end, after he has doubted, after he has worked through and processed through his doubt, and Jesus has met him in his doubt, he ends up saying, my Lord and my God. The greatest declaration of who Jesus is in the Gospels. So there's hope for us. There's hope for us. Even as we enter this place, hope is a scary place. It's a dangerous place for you spiritually, but God does wondrous things in it. So let's not ignore it. There is confusion about what it means to doubt. And therefore, there's confusion about what it means or what it looks like to deal with our doubts and address our doubts. And so we're going to begin this morning about what it means to doubt. First, we're going to look at the process of our doubt, and then we'll look at the processing of our doubts. The process of our doubt and the processing of our doubts. How does doubt work? Where does it come from? The psalmist uses in verse 2 a mental picture, an image, a word picture here of a person whose foot is slipping. They're walking along a path and their feet slip out from under them. That's the image, that's the description that he's giving of doubt. Think about what happens when you slip. What's going on there physically? You get disoriented, you lose your balance. Physically, you slip because your feet, your body, cannot process quickly enough the terrain that is going on underneath you. Right? I um, have a lot of trips across the house in the middle of the night. If you parents ever experienced this, the child has left, or the many children have left things, little booby traps for the parents (laughs) as they come across the house to comfort them. Yes, I have had many wondrous moments. How many of you have had that wonderful moment when you're trying to get your underwear on? (laughs) Or get out of the shower in which your body doesn't really understand or know how to process rather quickly the surface that is underneath you. That's slippering. In the same way, your heart slips. Your heart slips. Your heart doubts because here's what's going on. Your heart cannot process quickly enough the terrain of your life. Doubt occurs in us when your heart can't make sense of the data quickly enough. There is an emotional response to life that overwhelms and overcomes your thinking and your thoughts. Doubts come when our personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. We talked about this in the Sermon on Emotions, that there are three components to the human heart. Right? There's the deep desires, the, the depth of your heart, but there are three things that, three uh, areas. There's the volitional, that's the will, there's the thoughts or the thinking, and there is the feeling, the emotions. And all three of these help, underst- help us understand the deep desires of our hearts. And what is going on here in doubt is the feeling aspect, our re- emotional response, the immediate quick reaction is so confusing it's as if that becomes so overflooded with emotion that it overtakes our thinking and even our will. This is what's going on with the psalmists. Doubts come when our personal experience overwhelms what our minds say to be true. For example, you might have said in the past, when engaging and looking at suffering, you say, look, I know there's suffering in the world. We, we know that. We know there's suffering. But I also know that God is, God is wiser than we are, and, and there is a purpose to all this. That's what we say. That's what we think. Until what happens? Until suffering enters your life. Then suddenly, your emotions are overwhelmed and you're not quite so sure about what you've been thinking for so long. Now it has happened to you. The suffering actually hits you and you actually begin to doubt God's plan for your life. You haven't gotten new information. 
you've had a new experience. You know that there's suffering in this world. It's just that the suffering has come to you now. So the process of doubt begins there when the theoretical, what the writer believes, what Asaph is believing, collides with the actual, what he's experiencing in his life. And he can't make sense of it, and it leads to confusion and a doubting heart. And this internal heart confusion plays out into the other chambers of our heart and our soul and our life. This heart confusion has a ripple effect that comes and bubbles up to the surface. It affects the way we think, and it affects the very way in which we live. What we see here is our doubts can begin to take the shape of an accusation and a question towards God. It affects our theology. In other words, the emotional response of our hearts forms, forms an intellectual voice. See, we so often think, we, so often we think of doubt, that's where we start is that someone has intellectual issues with God and what he is doing. They have, and that's where they're thinking, but more often than not, it is beginning with something under the surface, that their emotional world is giving voice to an intellectual world. And in particular, we begin to doubt our beliefs about God. And when you believe things about God, that means we're entering the relational and the theological realm. In the case of Asaph, what is he questioning? He's questioning, frankly, the whole paradigm of his theology. He's questioning God's goodness, and in fact, he's questioning God's promises to him. Here's the paradigm that Asaph believes that he is working under. I do good, God does good to me. The wicked do bad, the wicked get bad things done to them. That's his paradigm. And because that is his theology, he is questioning God's goodness and God's truthfulness to him because that is not the paradigm that it appears that God is working under. Again, you have to see that this is not merely an intellectual problem. That's what I want to get underneath this morning. Because for too many of us, we deny our doubt because we just think that's the realm of the intellectuals. Or if we're an intellectual, we think that it's merely we're just being intellectually honest. When usually for many of us, we have things underneath it. At the core, where he, where this author, this psalmist, is having a personal experience. And that personal experience is affecting his minds. And not only does it affect his minds and his theology, but it then begins to affect... How, how he lives his life. Do you see how, what, he is tempted, what he's tempted to think and how he's tempted to view his life? Look at verse 13. He begins to doubt the character of God, and that can lead to an undermining of our desire to obey God. When you doubt and question God's character, you're going to doubt and question whether you should obey him. In verse 13 and 14, he says this, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, What's the point of all of my obedience? If God's not going to keep his word to me. Tell me if that doesn't sound familiar. Basically, he's looking, he said, listen, I've tried to keep pure. My understanding was that God cares for those who are pure in heart, but it seems to be in vain because all day long I'm afflicted. This has been your experience probably at some point or other in your life. I've had people sit in my office and talk to me about this, in which in summary, and it's so honest, right? This is the, the nature, this is the voice of our hearts. God, I've adopted this child. I've suffered and I've, I've, I've given much of my resources. Why are you letting this happen? Why are you seem to be cursing me financially? You're supposed to provide. God, I've taken care of this person, and yet they seem to hate me. <laughs> Why? That's not the way it was supposed to go. Listen, our hearts, we're, our emotions, experience, and actually if you look up the dictionary, it actually, and I, I mean, this is like, Teaching 101, right? You look the word up in the dictionary. I don't think I've ever done that uh, to start a sermon, but we'll go to this. In, if you look up in the word, the word doubt in the dictionary, it actually says it's an emotion. It's a feeling. That's where it begins for us, and it begins to affect our minds. 
and makes atheists of us, but it doesn't start with our intellect. It starts with our hearts, our feelings, our emotions. Let me tell you the story of Vanya to illustrate this. I lived in Bosnia for a year working with Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, primarily engaging with um, Muslim students, and many of whom um, were of the age that they had been four, five, six years old at the time of the Yugoslavian Civil War, in which Sarajevo was under siege for the better part of three years. Most of these kids, or these kids, they were in college by the time I knew them, had experienced and seen unbelievable suffering. The kind of things that four, five, and six-year-olds could not see. And in fact, what we found was often when we would share the gospel with these students, their, 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 way, their secret weapon to try to fend us off when we really pressed on them on the gospel, when we really we shared it and we were like pressing for them to think about it and to engage with it, is they would go, yes, but I saw one of my friends blown up. That's what they would do. There was one particular woman in which we worked with many times, sitting on coffee, as they put it, and the sidewalk coffee all afternoon, or sitting in smoky pubs late at night, having these conversations with this young girl named Vanya. And Vanya was a uh, proclaimed atheist. She claimed that God does not exist. And we had many conversations, many apologetic-type conversations with Vanya and getting to know her. But over time, what actually, Vanya's story came out more and more. Vanya walked with a limp, and part of her face had a droop to it. Vanya said, came, finally came out one day and said this. I, one time, I did believe in God. But then one night during the war, when my brother and I were sleeping in the same bedroom in our flat, a missile hit the side of our room. And my whole right side was shattered with all sorts of shrapnel. I was in surgery and had multiple surgeries, surgeries was unconscious for days on end. And I woke up and I've walked with this limp. My, my leg has been torqued in various directions. I've had multiple surgeries to do things for my skin to graft it back together. But she said the most shattering thing when I woke up was not so much all the damage that had been done to me, but when I looked over and asked where my brother was, they said he was no longer. And it was then that I said, I don't know I believe in God anymore. And let me ask you this. Did Vanya have an intellectual issue with God or did she have a relational issue with God? The reality was is that Vanya had, she was angry with God. It wasn't that she didn't believe that he didn't exist. It was that she hated him. And that her atheism was giving God the cold shoulder. Listen, there are real intellectual questions. But there, is, there are real intellectual questions almost all the time. There is at the heart of every doubt it comes through our experience. The sufferings that we experience in this world, when the words about God's goodness collide with our experience, you either shut your heart down or you walk away from God completely. That's the heart of doubt. That's the process of doubt within us. So, what do you do with your doubt? What do we do with doubt? Well, there's two solutions that don't work. There's the world solutions at least the, the current spirit of the age. Here's the spirit of the age in regards to doubt. The spirit of the age right now is to praise doubt. In fact, that might be the greatest religion of our, spirit, of our age. I watched a TED Talk this week by Casey Gerald entitled The Gospel of Doubt. Here's what he goes through. And, you know, if you've ever watched a TED Talk, these people are brilliant communicators. It's great. And you find yourself going, man, this guy's a genius. When you actually think about it, you're like, wait a second. Here's what he went through talking about his belief and how he came to believe in doubt as his religion. He said he went, through a whole lit- he went through a whole litany of things that he had believed in his life. He grew up in East Texas going to his grandmother's church. And he said, though, he believed in God quite thoroughly until in the night before Y2K, in which the pastor of the church declared that Jesus is coming back. 
at midnight of the year 2000. And so for hours upon hours that night, they sat and they prayed, and the pastor just prayed over the people, and then the clock struck 12. And the pumpkin was turned back to its original form, he said. He believed in God, but no longer. Then his God became education, and he got the best education he could find. He studied very, very hard in high school. He eventually got into Yale and could have the best education that money could buy. But then he found himself one night robbed at gunpoint with a gun stuck to his head, and he realized, my education won't save me from the world's worst trials. Then he went and got a master's degree in finance. And in 2008, he went to work for Lehman Brothers. Did you hear me? 2008. So the next year, the God of our time, financial provision, that God was taken from him. Then after that, in 2000, after that destruction of his financial world, he went to work for a young senator who proclaimed change, who was going to come and be this political second coming. And he went to work for the president only to find that the country was further ripped apart and the hope for change seemed like a cruel joke. So what did he do then? He went and worked for a nonprofit. Started a nonprofit that worked all over the country, helping social movements and small businesses. But then he had an epiphany at a fundraiser one night. All he was doing was plugging the leaks. Plugging the leaks, and he had run out of fingers. He'd run out of fingers to plug all the leaks, and what there was needed was a whole new boat. Living a good life couldn't save him either. And so he ended this way. This is how his talk ended, but now he preaches the gospel of doubt. And here's what he said. Quote, the gospel of doubt does not ask that you stop believing. It asks that you believe a new thing. That it is possible not to believe. That it is possible that the questions and the answers are wrong. Then he concluded this way. This doubt feels me. It gives me hope that when our troubles overwhelm us, when the paths laid out before us lead to our demise, when our healers bring no comfort to our wounds, that it won't be our blind faith, but it will be our humble doubt that shines a light into the darkness of our lives and world. And let's raise our voice to whisper and to shout that there must be another way. Our society is so self-conscious, he says, we must get rid of our belief. It sounds so smart, but it's so ridiculous. We have so self-consciously tried everything, to believe in everything, that now we simply come to the place that our one belief is this, that we glory in the shifting sands underneath our feet. That we don't even say it's about the destination anymore, right? It's all about the journey, because there's no point in having a destination. The church, on the other hand, what does the church do? The church demonizes doubt. Some of you grew up in traditions where if you were to ask questions of the pastor, you were deemed as unfaithful. If you were to express any sort of doubt. And for some of you, when you went off to college, you began to walk away from the Lord because you've actually got around people who were not necessarily Christians. You got into classes where they were reading books that began to question your faith and challenge what you believed. But here's the thing. The psalmist doesn't go to either of those solutions. The Bible doesn't shy away from our doubt or from doubters. It doesn't push doubting away. It doesn't acknowledge and say that doubting is really good. But it doesn't also say that doubting has no place in the church and in the life of the Christian. It's important for us to tackle the very toughest questions of the human heart. Because if we do not, we will not grow. Parents, you must engage with your children's questions 
In church, we must engage with the toughest questions. And usually they are not something so scientific. Usually there's something about suffering. Why would God allow that? The complexity and the nuance of Scripture in engaging doubt means that we cannot simply shrug off our doubt with simple answers and quick fixes. We must have something more profound. In reality, I think what God gives us is not simply a quick fix, but he gives us a process, a process for our doubts. You remember in The Matrix, if you want to go back to being blind, what do you, what do you swallow? You swallow the blue pill. Brothers and sisters, there is no blue pill when it comes to relieving your doubts. There is a process, and it is painful, but we must walk the road, fight along the process in order to engage with our doubts so that we may get closer with God. So that's the second thing we're going to talk about this morning. What does that process look like? The processing of our doubts. And the primary thing I want you to see here, the great turn of this psalm is where? Verse 17. I was weary. I envied the wicked until, until... Until I went where? Church. Until I went to church. The place for processing is what I want you to see. Listen, brothers and sisters, you can doubt, but it's where you go with your doubts is what matters. The place for processing is the worship of God. The psalmist, he goes to church. He went to a worship service. He heard the word of God sung. He heard the word of God preached. He heard the people singing to one another. He was surrounded by believers. He had questions for God, but he didn't give up on God. He stayed in dialogue with God. You know where the best place to doubt is? It's church. It's to come together with us in worship. You see, some of you were disturbed like I was this week by what went on in our country. Where's the best place for us to be this morning? It is not on our Facebook accounts, right? That has torn us up inside. It is to come before the face of God, to exercise faith in his presence, to cry out to him. You didn't get into your doubts by your intellect alone. You understand that? By understanding the way you got into doubt, it was not merely intellect alone. It was your experience with this world and your relationship with God and the sense of separation and that he had blackened his face from you. That's what led to your doubts. And therefore, to have your doubts relieved, it cannot be merely an intellectual process. It must be experiential, and it must be relational. And worship cannot be a one-time deal. In fact, it couldn't have been, right? Asaph goes into worship, but I don't think it was resolved immediately. Asaph goes into worship day in and day out multiple times. Asaph, Asaph is a Levite priest. He's a worship leader, a song leader in God's, for God's people. And for him, it was a process, daily coming into God's presence with his questions, with his worship, with his issues with God. If you're not a Christian, let me ask you this, though, because you may be asking yourself this. If I don't claim to know God, why should I still come to church? Should I still come to church and engage with my doubts? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely. And here's the reason why. Because it's fair. If you actually want to be intellectually honest, you'll come to church. You see, the whole world tells you to think and to evaluate your life without God, without God, without God. You are the one who decides. You are the one who decides. And that's the message you get every day from all the people around you and all the places you go. Could you give us one place where you might hear a conflicting message? One place. It's intellectually honest. When I was in seminary, I'd grown up a Presbyterian. My dad baptized babies. That's what I grew up watching. 
And in seminary, I was supposed to be studying and dialoguing with theological beliefs. So I really believed this whole thing. And for the better part of the first two years of seminary, I wasn't sure where I, where I stood on the issue. And what I did is I figured it was only fair that since I'd grown up in a Presbyterian church, that I would go to a Baptist church. And so that's what I did. For two years in seminary, I went to a Baptist church, and I met with the pastor, and I interned with the Baptist church. And you know what? It was while I was at the Baptist church that I became convinced that infant baptism was the way to go. That's not to say that you won't be convinced. But I'm simply saying that I was trying to be intellectually honest. Relationally, I was surrounding myself with those who didn't believe what I believed, with those who could speak other truths that maybe I didn't agree with or had not thought about before. There is a God. You must engage with him in his answers. Would you come to God? Would you actually, even if you're a non-believer, would you enter into worship? And give us, give us one in seven to maybe have you change your mind. This is what happens. And what happens when, when Asaph comes into God's presence? when he enters into worship, when he comes and brings his doubt before the Lord. There's a recalibration to his thinking. He's having the experience now of hearing the other side. And what happens? When you hold an opinion and a view and you hear the perspective of other people, it forces you to go back and think again about the issues. As Asaph comes into the sanctuary day after day, he enters into worship. He comes and he prays his doubts before the Lord and he experiences the Lord. A shift happens. A paradigm shift happens in Asaph's life. You see, worship provides a corrective lens. It provides this corrective vision. One pastor puts it this way. He said, worship puts God at the center of our vision. And it's vitally important because it's only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. Great illustration of this in regards to your life. You need something aside from your own feelings and your own emotions and indeed your own intellect to communicate with you. You need something more objective. We have a number of pilots in our church or ex-pilots in our church. And I don't know if they ever got to fly a jet. Most of us will never get to fly a jet. But I think this is fairly common knowledge that if you're a fighter pilot and a jet pilot, that there is times when you get up there and you're moving so fast and you're twisting in so many different directions that you lose your equilibrium and you lose your sense of where the ground is. And in that moment, if you actually pay attention to your internal sense of direction, what might happen? You might plunge straight into the Pacific. What do you need? What does a jet pilot need in that moment? They need their instruments. They need something objective that will tell them to truth, the truth, and that is what worship does. That when we're in the midst of our doubt, when we're struggling, worship comes in, comes, coming to worship and engaging with God is the greatest vision, and hearing God's word, you get to hear the instruments, the objective truths. You get to hear from God. And when you are disoriented in a cloud, to hold on to God, it engages your heart, it gives you right directions, and there's a new paradigm that comes about because of that. So first, we've got to come to the place, the right place of worship, which is before God. And then here's what happens. There's a shift of our thinking. There's a paradigm shift. Three ways in which our thinking shifts. I want to look at this morning to end our time. The new paradigms from our processing. Asaph's shifts leads to this. What he goes through and what we ought to go through as well when we come into worship. Asaph sees that his, he sees his doubts for what they are. Asaph sees his doubts for what they are. He sees the true motivations, and so ought we. That we ought to come in in worship, and actually as we see God and worship God, we may see our true motivations for our doubts. Do you see, what was the, what was the um, motivation underneath Asaph's doubting? It says this, but As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I had envied the arrogance. 
There's a sin underneath the doubts. Isn't that interesting? This is not just an intellectual problem. He says, I was resentful of those who had much, of those who had power, of those who did wicked things and yet still had wealth. The motivation for his doubt was envy. There's something growing in his heart that caused this. What this tells us is this, if there are emotions and motivations underneath our doubt, then we're going to have to honestly address those motivations before we can truly be intellectually honest about our doubts. We have to get to the root of them. In other words, I'm asking you to be honest. To be honest about what's at the root of your doubts. To question your doubts. To doubt your doubts. To evaluate them. But did you know that we have an incredible incentive to resist God? Some of you have an incredible incentive to resist God. You have great motivation. Because if there is no God, guess what? You get to do whatever you want. Aldous Huxley, who was a famous... Um, uh, novelist of the 20th century and a profound atheist philosopher he was honest though he understood this about himself and here's what he said he said he i had motivations for not wanting the world to have a meaning consequently i assumed that it had no meaning and was able to find without much difficult for difficulty satisfied reasons for my assumption the philosopher who finds no meaning in this is not concerned exclusively with issues in metaphysics but he is also concerned to prove why he has not valid reason to personally do what he wants to do. He said, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was simply an instrument of liberation, pointedly for my sexual and political liberation. You see that? He's being honest. He didn't want to believe in God because if he believed in God, God might crimp his style. And for many of us, we don't want to believe in God because God's telling us what to do. And so it's, we have motivation, false incentives to get rid of him. I'd also say it's safe socially, isn't it? Particularly in our day and age. Listen, this is moving from a, um, might, what might be considered at least a moral modernist society to a clearly anti-Christian society. This is going to become one of the issues. No longer is it okay. It, most of our views as a church are no longer socially acceptable. They are not. So how much of us, how many of us will stay, will keep um, proclaiming the truth? See, for many of us, we simply want to go along with the spirit of the age. And so we're going along with the society around us. We do the same thing. We're letting our theological views be shifted by those with the, the applause of others. Do you really want to get over your doubts? Or are you simply using them as a prolonged excuse not to submit to God? So doubt your doubts. Could you evaluate your doubts, brothers and sisters? Second, the psalmist finds that he must compare objects of faith. Verses 18 and 19. Look at the imagery he brings in again. Surely you place them on slippery ground. So he pulls, he comes into the, the presence of God. His paradigm is shifted. And one of the, immediately one of the first things he sees is, wait a second, their life is not so great. And their end is not so great. Remember the metaphor here. Where do we begin? Verse 2, he says, I had almost slipped. And now he's comparing his sliding to the sliding of the non-believers, of the wicked and the evil. He's already used this metaphor. So where, where the foot is slipping is your faith. It's the thing you have your faith in. Therefore, when your foot slips, it means you're having trouble keeping your faith. So what he's saying is he's turning, he's turning around and saying, now wait a minute. Their foot is somewhere too. My foot is slipping, but their, their foot is slipping as well. They have faith in something, and where their faith, what their faith is in is not near as good as what my faith is in. That's what he's saying. You see, we are all a people of faith. All of us. 
Whether you claim to be an atheist or whether you claim to be the most professed theist, we are all people of faith. All doubts, listen to this, all doubts are an alternative set of beliefs. We quote from Rankin Wilburn, who's a pastor in our denomination. He said this. I thought this was well said. He said, when you doubt anything, you do so on the basis of beliefs, which in the act of doubting, you do not doubt. Whenever you doubt anything, you do so on the basis of beliefs, which in the act of doubting, you do not doubt. The choice is never faith or no faith. The choice is which faith. Where will you put your foot? G.K. Chesterton said this, When belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is simply to turn away from him. But in heaven's name, to what? You see, it is more slippery if you reject God. For instance, so many of us reject God because we, we cry out with the suffering in this world, and we say, that's not right. That ain't good. And if God allows that, then I'm bailing on God. He must not exist. But if you reject God because you doubt his goodness, then you don't have any doubt, to, you don't have any ground on which to be outraged. If you've gotten rid of God, he's no longer there for you to be outraged at. So now who will you be angry with? The psalmist realizes that even the wicked have put their feet somewhere. They have rested their souls in something that can be taken away from them forever, just like that, very quickly. You see, their wealth, their power can be gone like that. But what's his, his faith is in something that's everlasting. In the heart of his doubt, he begins to say, maybe I'll live like these people instead of the way I've been living. But brothers and sisters, that would take faith. It would take an enormous amount of faith. So he says, no, 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 no. The faith I have is better. Could you compare faiths? Third, those are not the only things that Asaph sees. There's one more thing he sees. Asaph also experiences and sees God's response to his doubts. And here's his response. Grace. Asaph experiences and sees God's grace. Asaph had lost perspective. He had envied the wicked. Look at how Asaph describes himself, though, in verse 21 and verse 22. He had lost a sense of himself by listening to himself. He had lost perspective about himself. And then in verse 22, he describes himself this way. He says, towards God, I was a beast towards you, a wild animal. He was acting like an animal who was in trouble. Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to save a cat from water? That's, that, that's the description that Asaph is giving. That he has acted like a wild beast. That God is seeking to remove the thorn. That God is doing work on his soul. And his response is to scratch at him. That's the image he's giving. Asaph's view of God here changes. Why? Because of God's response to Asaph's beastliness. Verse 23 reveals how God responded to Asaph. I want to say, verse, the first, first verb there, nevertheless. I was a beast. I was scratching and clawing at God. I was a beast. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. In the New Testament, it's but... In the Old Testament, it's nevertheless. There's so much grace in that word. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. In other words, God, I tried to let go of you. I scratched and clawed, and I tried to get you to let go of me. I let go of you in every way I possibly could, but you didn't let go of me. That's the grace that he goes in and experiences. He simply declares at the end, what's he say? God 
is good to me. Present tense. God is good to me right now. His circumstances have not necessarily changed, right? His perspective has changed. Asaph's view of God has changed. His theology has changed because he experiences God's grace in the midst of his doubt. You see, he... It's not simply even his view of God. It's his view of how God interacts with us changes, right? At the beginning, it's, I do good, God gives me a cookie. The wicked do bad, they get hell. That's his paradigm. What is he saying now? I am a beast, and yet God has given me grace. That's his paradigm. His paradigm is that God is so good and so gracious, and the way he interacts with me is not based on my performance, but simply on his grace towards me, and that changes everything. At the root of his doubt is envy. He wanted what the, what the wicked wanted. Now what does he want? What's he say? I have nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God, in all of God's beauty, and all of God's glory, and his graciousness, and that way, it has expelled the envy in his heart, the root of his doubts. He's seen that, listen, the, the wicked get all these things, but that's going to go away in a moment. But I get God's, and he's never going away. Here's the question, though. How did Asaph know that God was never going away? Last question this morning. What's he do? He goes into the sanctuary, and what would happen at the very beginning? At the very, as he's entering the sanctuary, what would he walk past? There would be an altar with a lamb burning on it. You see, doubt is a serious thing. God does judge it. He judges the sin that's underneath it, but here's the gospel. Instead of condemning us for our faithlessness, God takes our judgment and he places it on the perfect lamb. How do we know? How do we know that when we enter the sanctuary, we will see God? How do we know that God will never leave us or forsake us? That even after time, after time, after time of clawing at him and running away from him, that he's still holding on to the scruff of our necks. How do we know that? Because there was one whose foot was slipping, and what did God the Father do? Did he stop it? You see, what does Jesus do on the cross? He asks a question. He's crying out just as a doubter asks a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the voice of a doubter. And what happens? The Father lets his foot slip so that he will never forsake you. So that even when your foot is slipping, what will be under you will be the rock of ages. And three days after he let Jesus' foot slip, right into death itself, he plucks them right back up so that you and I will know that even death cannot remove his grasp from your neck. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that the truth that even in the midst of our doubts, we can come and cry out to you. And gracious Heavenly Father, what I ask for those in this room, whether they're Christians and they're simply hurting and they need reassurance, God, I pray that in this place, even in this final song, God, as we sing, that, Lord, they would encounter the living Lord who promises to be with us always. For those this morning that come in in doubt and do not have any sort of saving faith, but are resting in some other faith, some some sinking sand, some shifting beach. 
But that's what they've rested their life on. Gracious God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to be better. That you would reveal yourself to be a better rock, a better foundation upon which they can rest their life. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would invade right now and do that in the hearts of men and women in this place where we fail to believe. Root out our unbelief, Lord, and draw us into worship of you so that we may say that you are our portion and that we want nothing else. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.